Well, uh, if you have a Bible and want to be finding two chapters, Luke chapter 2 and Luke chapter 22, in order to understand the good news of great joy, we got to read both of these chapters. So Luke chapter 2 and Luke 22. Here's what the Word of God says. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered. And Joseph also went up from Nazareth to Bethlehem, the city of David, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In that same region, there were shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were filled with fear. Now here's the angel's announcement. Here's a message from heaven. First two words that they've heard from heaven for 400 years. You want to talk about waiting for something. 400 years. First two words. Fear not. Anybody here today fearful? Heaven's message is fear not. And here's why. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy which will be for all people. For unto you this day in the city of David has been born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And while they, (coughs) excuse me, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would open our eyes to the glory of the gospel, to the power of the gospel, That these are words we must hear in order to be saved. That there's been born for us a Savior. He's Christ the Lord. First of all, Father, convict us of our need for a Savior. And then secondly, confirm in our hearts the reality that the Savior is Christ the Lord. And then, Father, as we look at your word, I pray that you would um, specifically reveal to us how Christ has saved us. What he has done, what he has accomplished, so that we would sing with great joy, Hallelujah, it is finished. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're in Luke 2, we also want to be finding Luke chapter 22. Um, many of you know that on a Thursday of this week, we had our baby girl, and Juliana was born December the 19th, and she and uh, mom are doing, doing great, but it's always a little fun and exciting to hear what the children, her siblings, would say about her. Uh, so Priscilla uh, saw a picture of Juliana for the first time, and Juliana was born with this pretty great uh, head of hair, dark hair. And if she's got my hair, she's got about 12 years before it all turns gray. So, so but, but uh, Priscilla looked at the picture, and I said, what do you think of her? And so Priscilla's first words were, she has hair like a boy. That's what she said of him, I guess because it wasn't long. But I'll never forget when Priscilla was born, her older sister, Mary Claire, is five years older than her. So this was three years ago. Mary Claire was five. And uh, we didn't know if we were having a boy or a girl ahead of time with Priscilla. And so we had told Mary Claire the good news that she thought was of a great joy, that she had uh, had a sister And so we took her up to the hospital. This was back in August 2010. 
to see her newborn sister and uh, brought her in the room and she held her, had this great uh, big smile on her face. And we left the hospital. I was driving Mary Clara back home and I looked in the rearview mirror and I saw this look on uh, uh, Mary Clara's face that was just confused and maybe a little even troubled. And so I said, well, Mary Clara, is there anything wrong? And she said, well, 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 yeah, daddy, there's just something a little bit wrong. I said, well, what is it? And she said, well, you said Priscilla's a girl. I said, well, yeah, she is a girl. And then she looked at me and she asked, well, how do you know? <laughs> she had held this little newborn baby in her arms. And so she was concerned that maybe it wasn't really a girl. So the next time uh, Mary Clara came to the hospital, we put a big bow in her hair. And so that seemed to solve the problem. <laughs> there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Yes, but how do you know? How do you know that he's the Savior? How do you know that he's the Christ? How do you know that he is the Lord? And that's why I asked you to turn to Luke chapter 22 and Luke chapter 23. One way to put this, one of the major points we're going to try to make is that Christmas and Easter, they've got to go together. The birth of Jesus is only good news of great joy in light of the death of Jesus. And the death of Jesus is confirmed that he is the Savior because of Resurrection Sunday. So what we're actually going to do is we're going to read a pretty significant portion of Scripture. I don't know if that's the right way. We'll just put it this way. We're going to read more Scripture than sometimes we, we do read. And, and even there on the screen, I noticed that it's not quite, quite right, and that's my mistake. It should say Luke twenty two thirty nine through twenty three forty nine. All right, so we're going to take in a good portion of Scripture here. And uh, as we read it, I just want to encourage you that this is the Word of God. And so as we read the Scripture, this is the most important thing. It's not necessarily what I have to say, but what God has to say from His, from his Word. And so what, what we're going to do is we're going to take in uh, this revelation from God as Jesus Christ is clearly demonstrated to be the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And what, as we read this, you're going to see that Jesus in all His glory stands out in great contrast to everybody else that's mentioned in these pages. And, and here is how he has saved us. Luke 22, beginning in 39, all the way to 2349. Okay, so here's what the word of the Lord says. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And while he was still speaking, there came a crowd and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were, with, and those, and when those who were around him saw that what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and to the officers of the temple 
and elders who had come out against him. Have you come out against a, as, a, as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But in this, your hour, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I did not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. And Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man is also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it from ourselves, we have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Chapter 23. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. And Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, "You You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I therefore will punish him and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why, what evil has he done? I find find in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. 
And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him a cross to carry it behind Jesus. And, and there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wounds that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the left and one on the right. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hanged who were hanged, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to him, Jesus, remember when you come into, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. When Jesus, then Jesus called out into a loud voice, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now there was a centurion. When the centurion saw that what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowd that had assembled for this spectacle when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts, and all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Jesus stands out so dramatically in this passage, doesn't he? So we need Luke 2, but we also need Luke chapter 22 and 23. A preacher that I like to listen to named Gary Miller, he's from Northern Ireland. And he lived there for 40 years, and he said he could summarize his full 40 years of living in Northern Ireland with one word. He said that one word was damp. He said it rained every day in Northern Ireland. After 40 years, he moved from Northern Ireland to Brisbane, Australia. He said, and it, he said it may have rained three days since he's been there in the last 10. He says, it's very interesting. I walk around, and the people all around me seem to take the sunshine for granted. He said, but having lived 40 years in Northern Ireland, I never take the sunshine for granted. And he said, the point of the illustration is we can take Jesus for granted. Have you taken Jesus for granted in the last month? It's a busy month, isn't it? Christmas time, probably the busiest time of the year. And I want to call your attention to these chapters so that at Christmas we do not take what he has done for granted. Well, I want to just point out three things. It's what a preacher always says when he preaches, right? Three things from the scripture, from, from this text. Number one, Jesus is perfectly, perfectly in control. He's perfectly in control. Did you notice? It's Jesus that leads the way to the Mount of Olives. It's Jesus that prays while the others sleep. It's Jesus who takes the initiative when Judas, when Judas walks in. 
Jesus is not taken. Jesus hands himself over. In another portion of the scriptures, he says, No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This is not a man embracing the inevitable. It is a man in control of all things. The contrast between Jesus and Peter could not be more stark in this section, right? Jesus is measured. Peter is not. Jesus speaks calmly. Peter does not. Jesus stands right before the high priest. Peter stands at a distance. Jesus is strong while Peter is weak. Peter's always talking, talking, talking. Peter's always making big claims of what he will do and what he will be. And then when the rubber meets the road, Jesus says, on, oh, excuse me, Peter says on three different occasions, I don't even know that man. And we're all like Peter, aren't we? We stand off at a distance. We make bold, brash claims. And sometimes we even try to act. It's Peter who takes out the sword and takes a swipe, no doubt, at the man's head. And probably the man, uh, the, the guard moved his head and he cut his ear off, right? Even when we try to do something, it's the wrong thing. We're all like Peter, and we all need Jesus. There's only one in this entire section who's faithful, and it's Jesus. We have that great Christmas song, and I love the Christmas song, right? Oh, come all ye faithful. The reality is if all the faithful came, there's only one who's going to come. It's only Jesus who is faithful. And, and the call for us is not to, to be the faithful ones to come. It's to come to the one who is faithful. He is the Savior. He's perfectly in control. The one on trial actually, well, before we leave Peter, by the way, let me give you an encouragement. You remember what Jesus does with Peter when it's all, when the resurrection comes, right? He restores him. He loves him. He forgives him. And it's going to be Peter, of all people, who's going to stand and preach at Pentecost. So maybe you found yourself this year denying Jesus. Maybe at, maybe at work. You say, I haven't been a good witness of the Lord Jesus. When people say, oh, aren't you a follower of Jesus? I kind of shrink back into the shadows. Good news of great joy. There's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The one on trial actually orchestrates the trial. He's not given up. Jesus is not throwing up his hands. He's, he knows exactly what he's doing. When he chooses to speak, which is, which is not frequently in this section, but when he does choose to speak, you can tell he's perfectly in control. He's, he's not having a breakdown. He's, he's not uh, nervous. He's in control. I want you to know that your Savior is in control. You know, if you're a sports fan, you know that there's some athletes that you want to have the ball in their hands when the shot clock's about to run, run out, right? You want a surgeon, if you go to the physician, a surgeon with a steady hand. Jesus can be trusted at all times because he's perfectly in control. He's not responding skillfully to changing circumstances. That's not what this uh, passage is about. He's not, he's not saying, okay, this happens and I'm going to respond to it. This happens, I respond to it. He's in control of the circumstances. And most anyone who is given power uses that power for his or her own benefit. Have you noticed that? Anybody who's given authority, anybody who's given responsibility, anybody who has the power always uses that power for his or her own benefit, for his or her own, own advancement. But that's not what Jesus does at all. He's got all control and he's got all power and he uses all that control and all that power not to preserve himself but to save us. Jesus has all power and authority. He says that clearly. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and he uses it not for his own preservation. 
Instead, he uses his power and control to bless others. We also get a pretty good overview of human nature in this section, don't we? There's Judas trying to orchestrate a power play for his own benefit. He's got his own agenda, and he believes he knows how that all this should work out. And so he betrays Jesus with with a kiss. There's Peter, again, not quite capable of doing what he said he would do. I will never leave your side. I will never depart from you. There's Pilate, who cannot quite get himself to act according to his own convictions. Do you see yourself anywhere in here? Right? Claiming that you're going to do more than you're going to do. Not quite able to act on your own convictions. Pilate, on several different occasions, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. And then he handed him over to their will. Ultimately, a people pleaser. Pilate's politically astute, but spiritually bankrupt. We don't need any more people who are politically astute, who know how to play the game. We, 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 we have plenty. What we need are people who are not spiritually bankrupt, but actually stand on their convictions. There's Herod, who resisted the call of repentance from John the Baptist, and now views Jesus as nothing more than a sideshow. He's given himself totally over to the sin nature and makes a mockery over everything that's holy. And then there's the fickle crowd, who not too, 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 too far in the past had said, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Here's the Savior. But now their shouts are crucify him, crucify him. And right in the midst of these conniving, cowardly people stands Jesus, perfectly in control. And he's going to the cross for the cowardly, going to the cross for the conniving, going to the cross for the very ones demanding he be crucified. And he is in complete control. Do you know why he's in complete control? For there's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The Lord is in control of all things, even in the midst of the worst of circumstances. So a a simple uh, principle and application for you. You can trust the Lord at all times, even when it seems like things are spiraling out of control. They're never spiraling out of control. First of all, we see here that Jesus is perfectly in control. Secondly, we see that Jesus is perfectly innocent. He's perfectly innocent. Not too, uh, not too long ago, I had um, instructed my precious oldest daughter that she had had enough sugar for one day. I seem to say that every day. Uh, but she had had enough sugar for one day, and there were some cookies on the counter, and I had told her, uh, you're not to eat the cookies, which is probably the hardest thing to tell a child, right? Here they are, the cookies, and, 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 uh, and I had gone on about some things, and I was sitting in my living room, and the blinds were open, and all of a sudden I see this little sweet figure uh, walking around to the front porch and kneeling behind a bush. And guess what she has in her hands? The cookies the forbidden fruit, right? And she's just nibbling away at those cookies and I'm just looking at her and then she's looking around and then spots me looking at her and oh, her face. The countenance had fallen and these big trembling tears begin to come out of her eyes because she's been caught. She knew she had done wrong. Jesus never had that look on his face. Jesus never did wrong. Jesus never had a single moment that he thought to himself, I hope nobody finds out about this. And do you know what? He's the only man who's ever walked on the face of the earth who can ever say that. 
everybody in the room this morning, and we'll start with me. We've all got things that we say, well, I hope nobody finds out about that. Been caught. Jesus is perfectly innocent. I mean, you just think about this one text. On this one text, there are several people who say, well, I hope nobody ever finds out about that. Peter saying, I hope nobody ever finds out that I said I didn't even know him. Judas who says, I hope nobody ever finds out that I've actually betrayed the Son of God. Pilate who says, I hope nobody ever finds out that I made a, 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 moment, a, a decision to satisfy and appease the crowd in a moment and I turned over to their will the Son of God. We've all got moments we don't want anybody to know about. But Jesus is perfectly innocent. His innocence, by the way, is starkly contrasted by the way he's treated with, by the authorities. They come with swords and spears for the Prince of Peace. And he speaks, speaks gently as they blaspheme him. At this kangaroo court full of false witnesses, he remains silent. Despite their lack of evidence, they rush him to Pilate. Pilate says he's innocent. Herod does not accuse him. Pilate says he's innocent again. Luke makes it clear that Pilate knows he's condemning an innocent man. The thief and the centurion both say Jesus is innocent. Peter's guilty of denying Jesus, but Jesus will never deny his people. Jesus will never deny you if you're his, his follower. There'll never come a moment, there will never be a moment that Jesus will stand off at a distance and say, I don't even know who that is. You know what he'll say? I purchased him with my own blood. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil, for I am with you. Judas is guilty of betraying Jesus. Jesus will never betray his people. Pilate is guilty of trying to appease the crowds, to appeal to popular notions and opinions. Jesus is never tries to appease the crowd. Herod is guilty of making a mockery of holiness. There is the Son of God standing before him. And the Bible says Herod was eager to see him because he wanted to see some sign done by him, some trick, some act, to be entertained. Jesus will never be anything but perfectly holy. The thief on the cross is guilty of terrible crimes. Jesus will never break the law of God. He says, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. He's perfectly innocent. And this is why he alone can be the Savior. This is why he alone can make a sacrifice for sin. Something sinful cannot be sacrificed for sin. So all these priests in the Old Testament, the high priests on down to all the Levites, they make sacrifice for sin, but it's not a worthy sacrifice because they themselves are sinful. You can't have a bankrupt man pay off your debt. A sinful man cannot make sacrifice for sin. Jesus is perfectly innocent. There has been born for you a Savior who is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Do you take him for granted? Has the sunshine of his favor and his word shone on you so frequently day after day after day that you've now begun to take this perfectly in control, perfectly innocent, spotless Lamb of God for granted. It's not just that He's innocent, He's perfect. And we killed Him. <laughs> the judge of all the earth, and we condemned Him, placed Jesus beside any man. And His purity is evident in our impurity. Selfishness and sin are obvious. Aren't you glad that there has been born for you a Savior? 
Aren't you glad that he has come? Here's a man that we can look up to. A man who's got no pride, no lies, no spin, no wishful thinking, no dirty secrets, only innocent holiness and sinlessness. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. First, he's perfectly in control. Secondly, he's perfectly innocent. And third, he perfectly trusts the Father in the midst of the worst of circumstances. Luke shows us that Jesus is in control, he's innocent, and that he trusts the Father in the midst of the worst of circumstances. Look at his prayer again in the garden. Luke 22, verse 42. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's an unfathomable act of submission, isn't it? Perfectly, flawlessly trusting the Father. Did you know that you actually have to have somebody trust God for you? You have to have somebody trust God on your behalf, and it's Jesus. He perfectly trusts the Father. Our situation is so hopeless, we actually need someone to trust God for us. There's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And as he's being crucified, look, in Luke 23, uh, Luke 23 and verse 32, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And as they're crucifying him, here's what Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And in the, in the Greek language, what he says there, he means he's saying it over and over again. I mean, they're literally nailing his hands and his feet to the cross. And as they're doing so, which has to be unbelievably physically excruciating, his response is to pray for them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. But (laughs) the mind-blowing reality is in order for his prayer to be answered, they have to crucify him. I mean, if they're going to be forgiven for what they're doing, Jesus has to die for them almost as they're doing it. Did you know the only way for you to be forgiven of your sins is for the Lamb of God to spill His blood for you? I mean, we think too little of sin, and by extension, too little of what Christ is doing here. It's kind of the nature of sin. The nature of sin is to sort of diminish itself. Ah, it's no big deal. Oh, it's only one time. Oh, everybody does that. But the reality of sin is it makes us guilty before a holy God because God's not like us. He doesn't kind of wink at sin. He doesn't kind of say, oh, that's no big deal. He's perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and he cannot dwell with sin. So there's one of two options. One, he could just eradicate us all, just destroy us. Or he can take the sin on himself, shed his own blood to purchase our redemption. There has been born for us a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And let me just expound on that just a little bit. Who is Christ the Lord and only Christ the Lord. There's not another Savior. There's not another way. Jesus isn't the one of many ways. He's, this is the only way. And it says here, here's their, here's their cry against him. Look at this, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And that request is impossible 
You do one or the other, but you cannot do both. Jesus could have saved himself. He's got all authority, all power. And one other place he said, there's a multitude, a legion of angels that I could come, that I could call and they could come. I could take myself right off this cross. But had he done so, we could not be saved. He cannot save himself and us. As a matter of fact, in order to save us, he does not save himself. He perfectly trusts the Father. For us to be forgiven, he lays down his life. Luke includes in his whole gospel a cast of hundreds, literally, but, but in this section, uh, many who stand in the background. As we read through the section, all these different people who are included. Did you see them all? He includes a cast of ordinary people to highlight the fact that Jesus dies for us. Jesus is completely surrounded by weak people. The disciples, they fall apart. Again, Peter's intimidated by a servant girl. He's accused of simply being with Jesus and he aggressively denies it. He's surrounded by weak people and by evil people. Judas says nothing in Luke's account. There's no words that come out of Judas' mouth. He only acts and his act is evil. They They come for him at night. The criminal rails at him. Barabbas is released. Barabbas, who's actually guilty of what they're saying Jesus did. Barabbas, whose name means son of the father. So the son of the father is released while the father's son is crucified that's the gospel in and of itself for you to go free the son of god took your place to free you not because you were not guilty but to free you as he paid for your guilt and at the end of the account at the end of the account jesus is finally recognized did you see it and did you see who recognized him it wasn't the pharisees or the Sadducees, who knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. It's a criminal, a dangerous man. He's called a thief, but they didn't crucify somebody who just did a little shoplifting, right? They crucified hardened criminals who'd done terrible things. And it's this hardened, guilty criminal who says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And up in verse 40, do you not fear God? We, indeed, justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. And there you see an invitation to Christ. There's humility, there's an understanding that we are guilty, and there's a recognition that he's not guilty, and that he has a kingdom, that he is the Savior. He's recognized also by the universe he created. The creation recognizes him. It says, the sun's light failed the whole land was dark for three hours well it's almost as if the creation remember in romans 8 it says it groans we're waiting the redemption it's like the entire creation it recognizes who jesus is and then astonishingly a gentile recognize him recognizes him the centurion surely this man is innocent Luke invites us to see him for who he really is, the Lord of the universe, the innocent one who takes our guilt, who brings about his own death that we might live. And this is the gospel. This is the center of history. It's pretty remarkable when you see some parallels between his birth account and his death account. At his birth, he was unrecognized by the Pharisees. 
Remember Herod, when he heard there was a king to be born, Herod goes to the Pharisees, these experts in the Bible, and says, well, okay, well, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And they got the right answer. Oh, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. But they don't recognize him at his birth. And then at his death, they don't recognize him. The rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Secondly, Mary's present at both. Mary's obviously there when he's born. And Mary's there when he's crucified. And it's in that moment that she understands the old prophet when he took to the temple. A sword will pierce your soul, Mary. And here's this baby that she brought into the world. and Wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Laid him in a manger for there was no room for them in the inn. Now, 33 years later, he's grown into a man and he's been crucified. And they're going to be, and they're going to put him in a tomb. Hey, good news of great joy. There's no room for him there either. He's going to come up out of that tomb. Third, there's an angelic announcement to the shepherds in Luke 2. How about this for an angelic announcement? On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went with them, taking the spices that they had prepared. And when they got to the tomb, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed of this, an angel appeared, hear these words again, and said, Fear not. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen just as he said. Fourth, (laughs) a parallel between his birth and his death is that the most unlikely people recognize him. In both cases, it's Gentiles. Of all people, the Gentiles. At his birth, at his birth, these wise men from far away, they come and say, where is he born king of the Jews? At his death, of all people, this Roman centurion, surely this is an innocent man. Fifth account, creation seems to recognize him. Why did the wise men come to Bethlehem? They saw a star shining in the heavens, and they said, we followed his star all the way here. At his death, it's no more star. The sun's light seemed to fail, and it's darkness over the Lamb. And fifth, oh, I lost count. <laughs> One more. Is that there's a death sentence put on him. You know there's a death sentence put on him at his birth, right? Herod had all the little boys murdered. Two years old and under at Nazareth. That's always the part that doesn't quite make the Christmas card, isn't it? Wiped them all out. Joseph had been warned in a dream to take his family down to Egypt. And then his death sentence put on him at his, well, obviously at his death. And he said, crucify him, crucify him. Saved others? Can he save himself? And at at his crucifixion, he does die. That's what it says. Then Jesus called out in a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. He's not breathing anymore. Heart stopped beating. They laid him in the tomb. Let me read to you one more verse. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He's perfectly in control. He's perfectly innocent. And he's perfectly trusting of the Father 
even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And so we're left with one question. We've done the who, the what, the when, the where. One last question, right? And that's the why. Why did he come? Why, why, why was he crucified? And the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to answer that question in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. You see the first three words of the verse? For our sake. For our sake. He made him, talking about God the Father to God the Son. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So let me give you three brief applications. Jesus is perfectly in control. We like to think that we are. We like to think that we're in control, and we're not. In fact, it, it turns out that probably the most frustrating points of your life are when you realize that you're not in control. Usually, usually what God blesses us with to show us that important reality is suffering. God blesses you with suffering for you to realize you're not in control. You can't figure it all out. You can't line everything up the way that it should go. We are not perfectly in control. Secondly, we are not perfectly innocent. All we like sheep have gone astray. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I would not trust the best day of my life to get me to heaven. There's not a day in my life that I've lived that I would present before an omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, holy, righteous God to say, here, this day, Lord, is this enough? It's not enough. We're not perfectly innocent. We're not perfectly in control. And we're not perfectly trusting at all times. That's why for our sake, we're guilty, not in control, and not trusting. For our sake, there's been born for us a Savior who is perfectly innocent, who is perfectly in control, and who does perfectly trust that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Would you stand with me? We'll pray together. Oh, come all ye guilty. Oh, come all of us who are faithless. Come all of us who are not innocent to the one who is faithful, to the one who is innocent, the one who did not save himself in order that we may be saved. Would you bow, would you bow your heads with me? This is the greatest, this is the Christmas present. God gave himself. I'm praying for grace for us to realize and understand what he's done. Have you ever believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and been saved? He is the Savior. Christ the Lord is is the Savior. There is only one name given among heaven and earth whereby we must be saved, Jesus Christ. I'm inviting you to believe in Him, to trust Him, to follow Him, to submit to Him. We cannot save ourselves. Good news of a great joy for all people. This is news for you. There's been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Even at this time of invitation, I would invite you to respond to him, to believe in him. Or perhaps you are a believer in Jesus. But the Holy Spirit, as he searches your heart, would give you this godly conviction. You have taken Jesus for granted. 
and that you would simply respond to him and say, Father, help me to see him clearly. Glory to God in the highest. Father, lead our time of invitation. If there's anyone here that by your grace and by your word that they've seen Jesus clearly and now recognize him for who he is, the Savior who is Christ the Lord, I pray that you would find us submissive to him, believing on him and confessing him publicly. In Jesus' name.